0: How many smiles do you see on BART when you ride BART?
1: Yeah, yes, I see plenty of people smiling on BART because Bart, Lies. BART gets people where they're going. Not 100% of the time, but, but most of the
0: time. Lies. Pants <laughs> on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, how much housing legislation can you fit in one day? A lot. Turns out, a ton. Too much. Uh, Arguably too much, at least for me to digest in a 24-hour period.
2: It was an exceptional amount of bills.
0: So the Mm -hmm. legislature, the state legislature, has technically convened for one day. And in that amount of time, there was a flurry, a blizzard, a flood of housing legislation. We'll be talking about pretty much all of the notable housing bills that were introduced. But of course, we'll be talking about one very high-profile bill. And Liam, why don't you tell us... What all of our listeners already know.
2: (laughs) So it's Senate Bill 50 uh, from Senator Scott Weiner of uh, San Francisco, a Democrat. This is the uh, uh, replacement measure, new measure, follow up measure to the unsuccessful uh, SBA 27 from last year, which was the most high profile housing bill. Writ large in the country, you'd say. Um, I'd in, agree. In quite some time. Self-serving way. Yes. In quite some time, I'd say, too. Yeah. Like, like, this is what people talked about. And we're here to talk about the new version of it uh, on this podcast.
0: And, you know, oftentimes I'll say we found the perfect guest to talk about this. But I think this time it's actually true. No offense to previous guests.
2: Because Who, it's it's Senator Wiener. It's himself. Senator Wiener. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we'll
0: be spending about a half hour with Senator Wiener. Later in the show, to we'll talk about S- SB50 and some other... Uh, housing-related matters.
2: Right. And which, again, for uh, the people who may not recall, uh, SB50 is uh, a bill that would increase
0: um, density around to stops. That's right. Primary uh, goal. First, a couple plugs. Uh, Liam, you got no plugs? No plugs. No plugs for Liam. This podcast is going to drop today on Thursday. Tomorrow, uh, the California Report magazine out of KQED is doing a follow-up to our California Dream Project's work on the legacy of Prop 13 where they're actually going to interview some of the people that we reached out to on this one block in Oakland and how Prop 13 has affected their lives. Um, It's good. I've looked at the script. It's going to be really good. I recommend for your, as you called them, Liam, true Prop 13 heads. Heads. (laughs) Um, This is definitely up your alley. That's December 14th. That is tomorrow, December 14th. Yes. Today is Thursday, December 13th. One more plug. Why don't, why don't you do this one? This is a podcast plug. Yeah. So uh, you might be aware it's to the end of the
2: year. Um, there's uh, trees about uh, in houses more so than usual. Uh, so <laughs> tinsel. Uh, just that yeah. season. Christmas
0: trees. You're Christmas saying, trees. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, you know, we have a complicated relationship with that. You and I. I'm perfectly <laughs> fine with it. <laughs> So as part of this season, it's the end of the year. And as uh, now become um, commonplace, we uh, a tradition, if you will, uh, have our second annual uh, avocado of the year.
0: That's right. So we're inviting you to nominate those particular moments in the California housing crisis landscape that could qualify as the most whimsical or absurd or funny. Um, of the year, tweet at us. We might put a poll out there to, you know, nominate four of these or so, um, and then we'll we'll have the avocado of the year. And I there's one that I'm secretly rooting for. Yeah. Yeah. Don't give it away. So speaking of the avocado of the year, it is time for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery:
2: the avocado of the fortnight.
0: The lighter side of California's housing crisis. <laughs> this fortnight, um, we have a user submitted avocado. Great. Yep. Uh, This comes from at Trib Tower Views, a multiple winner of user submission for Avocado of the Fortnite. Which which was the previous one? I
2: I don't remember, but I remember saying at Trib Tower Views at some other point.
0: Well, thank you at Trib Tower Views. Yeah. And this person tweeted a story by Trisha Thadani of the San Francisco Chronicle about nudity in sequa,
2: which is apparently an unmitigable
0: (laughs) negative impact. (laughs) Nice. And just so everyone knows, Liam writes these in advance. <laughs> he he plans this out days before exactly what- You his... should
2: see the list of secret jokes that I have just ready to spring forward onto people.
0: <laughs> and not just for this podcast. No, you should see me at dates, the bar. Yeah. Yes. Uh, at strangers in the street. <laughs> um. So Liam, are you comfortable taking the lead on reviewing- what nudity and and the California Environmental Quality Act and housing all have to do with each other? So, sure.
2: California Environmental Quality Act, uh, many listeners know, is this law that was put into place in 1970 in California that requires new development to sort of uh, say what's going to happen to the environment by um, its its, its construction. Uh, It's much more detailed than that and much more controversial than that, but at its base that's what it says. And so this law has been used and oftentimes criticized for holding up um, projects because because it has very many stringent uh, obligations. So uh, there's a new lawsuit um, coming in San Francisco regarding a building uh, that's going to be relatively large, uh, 100 development, 150,000 uh, square feet of commercial space. And uh, tall, tall. Tall. Yeah. How tall? You have, the, you have the height on there? I don't have it. I don't have it. I um, do
0: not, but it is tall to interfere with a uh, specific enterprise. Yes.
2: So... Uh, Before we get quite get there, close to sixteen hundred houses, a quarter of which would be uh, reserved for low income folks, and uh, as you said, tall, tall enough to bother a Russian bathhouse nearby. Yeah, yeah. And uh, at said bathhouse, um, there was some concern from the owner that the uh, uh, sunbathers, who occasionally sunbathe in the nude, would have their privacy. Interrupted by this new sort of massive complex.
0: And, Liam, the reason I'm having you kind of take the lead on this is as a uh, frequent utilizer of Russian bathhouses yourself, mm-hmm. do you – I feel like – does this hit home in a particularly personal way?
2: You know, you, you don't have to say who you who sequel you know, plaintiffs
0: are. No. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's the, what's the current status of this lawsuit? It's out
2: there it's out there. And so uh that's so this is again, you know, um to be clear, the the environmental claim is not specifically about um nudity. No. Uh but it does sort of play into a common negative stereotype over sequa, which is that people use unrelated concerns to the environment and use sequa as a leverage tool to get their unrelated concerns dealt yes. with.
0: And there there are, you know, non-nudity concerns yes. in the way this development would affect this particular business, Traffic right? Traffic and all sorts of and things. Noise. Yeah. And noise. If you're trying to run yeah. a spa, which yeah. is what a bathhouse is. Yeah. Well, you would know more than me, but uh, <laughs> you know, you probably don't want the sound of drills and right. other construction sounds to interrupt the, the peaceful relaxation of your patrons. Right. And can you imagine um, laying out, you know,
2: spawn it up, uh, <laughs> nary a care in the world, nary an article of clothing in the world-
0: And then there's someone spying at you. I literally can't imagine that. Wouldn't like that. No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So that concludes our avocado of the fortnight. Now, Now to the meat of our podcast this fortnight. The flurry of housing legislation that we saw introduced in the one and only day of- the state legisl- of the new state legislative session. Yeah.
2: So let's take a step back on that. I mean, I think we certainly both expected there to be a, a, a real large number of housing bills and a, and a large number of sort of big housing bills come out this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't know about you. I, I was surprised it all
0: came out on this this one day. And not only yeah. were, so I was also surprised. Yeah. Not only were we, but yeah. t- I don't know if you talked with advocates, yeah. but they were also like, wow, this is a lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot, a lot of stuff on the very first day of session. Yeah. So
2: here's my theory, uh, okay. why, why we saw that. Yep. Um, you have an incoming governor, mm-hmm. an incoming governor who says he wants to do a lot of things on housing. Uh, you also have a legislature that's a bit more experienced than legislatures in the past. We had a change in term limit rules about six years ago uh, or so um, that has allowed lawmakers to stay in around Sacramento more. And they've gotten educated, more educated on, on issues than they were able to do in the past. And so they want to be able to say... Look, we're going to put our marker down and you, new Governor Newsom, uh, are going to have to react to us on this as mm-hmm. opposed to just us taking the lead from you, like uh, like has been often been criticized uh, as their from approach the under, under Jerry Brown.
0: Yeah. And adding on to that, besides kind of I think the kind of collective assertion that you're you're implying from the legislature to be a little more cynical This is also an opportunity for individual legislators to carve out their particular portion of the cure to the housing crisis. Right. So, So this is I'm sending my press release on redevelopment. I'm sending my press release on, you know, X, Y and Z housing bill. So this is my territory. So on the one hand, to me, this is a positive sign in terms of the attention that housing is going to get. The legislature certainly is interested on in doing stuff on on housing Mm -hmm. that's one takeaway from this but also you know i i hate to break this to you liam Mm. but um sometimes sometimes ego Mm. legislators egos Mm. might get in the way of good policy man i know i
2: i'm I'm as you know i'm an idealist i
0: know and that you just stuck a pin in my bubble there i'm sorry man popped it yeah sorry Mm. about that there was, as we mentioned, a ton of bills that were introduced. We've we've isolated a few that we feel are among the most most noteworthy. No offense to those the authors of uh, other bills that do not m- make the podcast. It's a long year.
2: We could talk about. We'll, a lot of we'll things. be talking yeah.
0: about it later. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. And of course, at the end of this conversation, we'll be talking in great detail about SB fifty, the SB eight twenty seven upzoning redux from Senator Scott Weiner. So we're gonna do this in, you know, we need a gimmick because we're the California Housing Crisis Podcast. Yes. So as we go through each of these bills, we're going to equate them with a hill or incline of some sorts in terms of the- Steepness. There you go. Mm-hmm. Of how hard it is for these bills to become law. And Liam, why don't you, unload all of the caveats that we need to disclose in terms of how accurate our prognostications are?
2: Well, the first one is neither of us know anything, so that's that's the first thing to put out there. (laughs) Uh, But but be that as it may, we should lead every podcast with that. (laughs) But be that as it may, I think there are two two things in particular. Um, One is we still don't know um, what Governor Gavin Newsom is going to do. New Governor, incoming Governor, Governor elect, whatever term you'd like, uh, is going to do Um, the extent to which he engages or does not or takes over process these processes will I think go an extremely long way to deciding what actually gets passed or not. So that's number one. Uh, Number two. um, You know, I think given the range of bills that that are out here, it would not be shocking um, for there to be a a, a similar effort to do a package of housing bills. Um, And if there is a collection of bills that are put together similar to as it was in 2017, that would mean bills that otherwise might not have any shot of passing could be could do so as part of a larger effort.
0: Yes. Not to mention a bunch of other. External variables that could affect the fate of not only these bills, but any anything that's trying to go through the legislature from federal action to the state of the economy. To, so just keep that in mind when you tweet at us clips of what we said from this podcast episode when something happens to these bills. Yes. Okay. Um, let's start with a topic that we've talked about actually in pretty good detail on this podcast before, redevelopment. So we actually saw three bills.
2: There's three okay yeah, yeah. so uh-huh.
0: so there I think there's three bills separate bills okay that uh, would attempt to revive redevelopment in some form. To quickly summarize what redevelopment was, why don't you just do it? Sure. Uh, <laughs> start, starting the 19- So, so yeah. do do it quick. Yeah. Do it quick. We yeah. got a lot to cover. Yeah.
2: So I'll do it real quick with, and definitely be real quick when I start with this sentence. Starting in the 1940s. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, no. California had a system whereby cities and counties could sequester a certain amount of uh, property tax dollars that were generated from sort of downtrodden neighborhoods and that money would go towards economic development with a certain percentage uh, set aside for low-income housing. Uh, that was an extremely, ultimately ended up being an extremely controversial program. Lots of sort of graft, corruption, et cetera. Uh, and then in 2000, um, 2011, uh, Governor Brown ended the program, or or sort of spearheaded the the, uh, ending of that program, uh, and Housing Advocates very upset that all that money went away.
0: Yeah, so it was about a billion dollars a year for affordable housing. That money has yet to be replaced. Exactly. Uh, But it might be back. So there, there were three bills, one from Assemblymember David Chu from San Francisco, who actually talked about... Uh, he was reintroducing a bill that he introduced this past legislative session, which he talked about on our podcast. We recommend you check out that episode. There is a proposal from Senator Jim Bell of San Jose, head of the Senate Housing and Transportation Committee, that takes kind of a different tack in reviving redevelopment. And then there's another proposal from Senator Anthony Pornantino, which has gotten less attention, but again, another attempt at reviving redevelopment in in some way or another.
2: He's from LA area. Yes, he's from
0: the LA area, apologies. Mm -hmm. Liam, what what should we kind of take home from all of these redevelopment proposals?
2: So um, I think there's this, been this pent up appetite, uh, not just on this, but I think in particular on this, um, because lawmakers sort of felt that they were dragged kicking and streaming uh, by Governor Brown under the guise of the budget crisis to get rid of this program uh, that they all really liked because this is a program. A lot of the lawmakers came from local government where this was mo- a lot of money that they had to 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 address these issues. And so um you know, they're they're all going to come back with plans to say, yes, 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 this is another way to help local governments deal with the housing crisis. and do it in a way, though, that it won't be grafting corruption-y like, like it was in the past. Yes. So more set-asides for low-income housing, for instance, um, more stringent uh, sort of strings. State oversight. State oversight and strings of what the money could be could be spent on, those sorts of things. And, so, um, uh, and um, also pretty happy that there was an endorsement, essentially, from uh, Gavin Newsom to bring back a redevelopment-type program when he got into office.
0: Yes, that was one of the pillars of his plan to combat the housing crisis. Exactly. We need to bring back redevelopment in some form, yeah. mostly to fund affordable housing. Yep. So that being said, let's embark on our slopey metaphor. Uh from little tiny Knoll, okay, to uh, Everest. Mhm. What what is where how big is this climb? How big I, is this climb? I
2: think it's once closer to Everest than Knoll.
0: Oh, um, well, is there,
2: any, <laughs> is there anything in between? I, I don't know. Mount Tamalipus, I don't know. I mean, m- maybe that Ooh, one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Interesting. You know yeah. Um, because I think this is a multi-year discussion to kind of get this right. Hmm. You know, I don't this this seems to me like a thing that is so complicated with so many moving parts that it's tough for me to imagine like there are a lot of. Funding bills that are way easier than this to understand, Mm -hmm. way easier to figure figure out. And I think the conversation that that Assemblyman Chu wanted to have last year to kind of get everybody in a room and figure things out uh, in anticipation for this coming year, I don't think it happened to the extent that he would have wanted to. And so I don't see progress on some consensus on some of these ideas really at the point where you could see it being hammered out in a particularly thoughtful way. Uh, so I I I think – I mean, I'm not saying it can't be done, yeah. but I'm saying it seems really hard um, and really hard to get right. Um, and and so I would not be shocked this is one of the ones that sort of doesn't, doesn't happen right away. Okay. I, that- I think long-term, I think absolutely, but I think this year
0: might be a bit of a stretch. So uh, I have a, a rosier mm-hmm. um, forecast for this. I, I think if there is some type of housing package – past this year it is hard for me to imagine it without redevelopment in it 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 could happen right but this is such a pivotal piece of ongoing affordable housing funding this is what the affordability advocates want sure and arguably want more than anything right they want that money back yeah 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 so i wouldn't say uh what was the mountain that you tamalipas yeah tamalipas yeah uh i'd say it's more of you know a hike yeah. That uh, my friends invite me on and they're like all outdoorsy and they right. do this for fun that I would never want to take part of. OK, let's move now to SCA one from uh, Senator Ben Allen from Santa Monica. Yeah. So some the potential, article 34 potential, bill.
2: Sorry. So, so some potential ballot measures um, here. Um, uh, you know, I think three of them we're going to talk about. Um, yes. And this would go these uh, all three of them, I believe, have not been decided, targeted for a date. Remember, though, that the primary California's primary is in March now. So either of these would go on the March or t- March 2020 ballot or in November of 2020.
0: Yes. And sorry, yeah. I should say SCA stands for Senate Constitutional Amendment. Yes. So
2: um, Article 34 is a provision of the state constitution that was passed in 1950. It provides a uh, uh, rule um, that... Any low-income housing project has to be voted on by a city or county in which it's in. Um, you may be like, well, wait a second, I didn't vote on the one down the street for me, or down the block for me, or um, or any other neighborhood. There are a lot of workarounds to that, um, and um, i like a little bit of a plug. I'm working on a sort of deeper look at Article 34's history, uh, and so we'll be able to talk about that more in depth. But uh, suffice to say, this has long been seen as a um, sort of barrier to low-income housing production, if not practically, which I believe it still is, also philosophically. To sort of have this provision, you know, called out in the state constitution is something that's, you know, frankly discriminatory towards poor people,
0: and not just poor people. the 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 history that Liam is referencing is racist. It it is it is a racist history of keeping. People of color out of wider communities. Short
2: answer: Yes, you're right. Long answer: There's a, there's actually been a long discussion about this. Yeah, um, that's the, that's been part of this
0: debate. And we should also say, practically, for all of these uh, constitutional amendments that we we're going to be going through that ha- were proposed on the first day of session, they need two thirds in each chamber, and then a fifty percent vote. I guess fifty percent and one on the on a statewide ballot. Correct. So. Um,
2: this this one, um I would uh, I think it's gonna be a pretty easy um sledding through the legislature. In terms of the the slope? You wanna give a this is uh this go, is go uh, this, this one's a hop, skip and a jump, I think, to In the legislature. In the legislature. Okay. Um I, I would I would I would be surprised if it were not on a ballot. Um but um I, I think a reason that it wouldn't be is if someone If no one commits to poning the money to actually run a campaign, which I think will be absolutely necessary to get something like this passed.
0: Okay, let's talk about
2: ACA 1. Yeah, so a Democrat um, from uh, the Sacramento area, uh, Cecilia aguiar mm-hmm. um has uh, introduced ACA1. This is actually a redo. She proposed this last year as well. And uh, right now, uh, for low-income housing bonds or, or money to, uh, among a bunch of other things, um, for, the local, for local governments to, to get them approved, it takes a two-thirds vote of the public. And she is suggesting um, for both housing and tra- certain transportation projects that have that threshold to be lowered to 55%.
0: So this amendment would have very practical political consequences. And you can see that um, in the election results from this past November. There were several housing bonds pegged for affordable housing um, in cities across California, San Jose, Santa Rosa, a handful of others that failed to meet the two thirds requirement. But got more than a majority, and in some cases exceeded that fifty-five percent threshold. Yeah. So it, it this is it's important. This is this this would be a very important and consequential constitutional amendment. Okay. What what's the incline? What, what how big's the hill?
2: I think it's higher than um, the Article Thirty Four. Yes, me too. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons. I think I think you have to again. This is sort of the largest thing they were saying at the at top top about the context of this. I, you know, I'd be surprised if this goes on the ballot the same time the Article 34 one does. Right. I mean, because you're going to have two measures now to make it easier to build low income housing. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like you have to think about what the structure of the ballot is going to look like for these sorts of things. And so, um, again, I'm not exactly sure what gets priority, um, but it seems to me like this would be a tougher thing to, to, to pass. Um, while certainly more consequential from a practical level. Exactly. um, And often those two things go hand in hand, right? Exactly. On the flip side, though, you
0: do see a natural constituency to put up money for this as opposed to Article 34. Right. So I would peg this as a very steep mountain. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let's get to uh, what I am calling the Liam Dillon Pulitzer Prize bill. Whoa. You know, in in this industry, um, there's a... There's a buzzword called impact mm. and it gets thrown around a lot. I use it when any anytime anyone tweets anything I do, I call that impact, impact. and I send it to the Pulitzer Committee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so far it hasn't worked for me. But I think this is actually an example of impact. Uh, this is SCA3 from Senator Jerry Hill. Liam, why don't you tell us uh, the the fruits of your labor? Yeah, so we'll see if it gets a committee hearing maybe before there this impact. Uh, but this
2: is a, a potential ballot measure that would address the uh, inheritance property tax break I wrote about over the summer. Essentially, this is the provision in the Constitution that says heirs can inherit their parents' uh, low property tax. Rates when they inherit their houses, and we found um, sort of most notably Jeff Bridges, uh, actor Jeff Bridges, and others were able to take advantage of this tax break to get a low property taxes for their parents' house while at the same time raking it out for a lot of money. Uh, and so Senator Jerry Hill introduced SCA three, and this would change the tax break such that you would you and heir would have to live in your parents' house in order to get it. Uh, in and of itself, um, I, it's tough for me to imagine this measure would put get on the ballot. But as part of something larger, I think certainly I think there's not a lot of people who in the abstract don't see
0: some sort of inequity here uh, that they would like to see addressed. Yes. And this could either be part of a tax reform package or a housing package or both. Exactly. OK, let's talk about the main event. SB 50, Senator Wiener's attempt to upzone uh, California neighborhoods around public transit and sometimes not around public transit, at least in this iteration of the bill. Let's, we're going to do this in two parts. The The first part is we're going to go over some of the, the policy differences between SB50, which they're calling the More Homes Act, um, which is more, let's see if I can do this, housing, opportunity, mobility, equity, is it equity or equality?
2: I'd probably pay attention to these things because I think they're silly.
0: Well, I think they've spent, they probably paid thousands of dollars in consulting fees yes, for this. Yes, right. Um, and then an S-
2: Sustainability, gotta be. Yeah, there you go, sustainability,
0: (laughs) yes. Uh, And then we're gonna go through some of the political implications of this version of the bill with special attention to those political obstacles that basically doomed SB 827 last year. So, Liam. Yes, Matt. uh, What is the point of this bill?
2: Yeah, so the point of this bill is essentially the same, or not essentially, is the same as what it was last year, which is basically allow for um, apartment building near transit and more of it. And so uh, we have, um, like it was in the final version of the bill before it died last year, this would allow for four to five-story apartment complexes in neighborhoods surrounding Metro in LA, BART in the Bay Area, other other rail stops. uh, There's there in San Diego or wherever else around the Caltrans South Bay. Exactly. Uh, The legislation would also ease some local restrictions on building homes near frequently used bus stops. So there's still a bus element of it, but it is not as robust uh, the prescriptions as it is around rail.
0: And the original SB 827 you could build up to eight stories in in a certain radius of public transportation that is no longer on the table so we talked about the same broad intent of the bill maybe a little less ambitious in terms of density at least the original version of SB 827 versus SB 50 what what notably stands out as different in this iteration
2: so there are three major things i think you and i and other observers have um seen in this bill that were not not there last year and so first is around there was this big debate over Uh, displacement and gentrification and tenant controls and make things, you know, to ensure that people don't get moved out of their buildings or moved out of their neighborhoods by this legislation. So this takes, uh, I think everyone would agree, a much simpler approach to that to that problem than, than the issue than they did last year. And this just simply says, look, if there was someone living on this property as a renter in the last seven years, you don't get. You don't get the advantage of using this bill. You can't use this zoning reform, number one. Number two, there's- a, so, yeah. so
0: sorry. So let, let's just hold on and flesh that out a little bit. Yeah. Can, the the seven-year the seven look back- Yes. Just to explain why- Because like if, if you told seven years, so a property can be vacant for seven years and you can't touch it. So the, the rationale behind this is um, you can buy a property, kick everybody out, then sit on it. And even after seven years, it's still profitable if you want to tear it down and build something new. So that is what they're trying to protect against: is displacement of tenants in that form.
2: Right, and to that point, um, you know, if there's Ellis Act has been used, which is the way that. Um, you take rent control uh buildings uh sort of off the market turn that into condos that provision is even longer 15 years so it gets at this sort of anti-speculation uh concern that was a part of the a major concern for last year's bill as well exactly and so the second the second one comes to um, another concern in that area yeah which is um areas that are um sort of at risk of intense gentrification or displacement they get a, a sort of a carve out here it says that you community, if you would like to, um, would be to be able to develop your own plan that would meet the sort of broad goals of SB50, but also perhaps uh, allow for some more intense um, anti-displacement um, uh, concerns be, be, be a part of that. Right.
0: Okay. Let's talk about this, uh, the, the last feature that we've identified, which is, hey... Could they build more dense stuff in Marin County, maybe? Look, there are communities, and we get into this with the
2: senator during the interview portion, where there are not transit, but there are also areas that have a lot of jobs. And instead of dri- having, you know, the idea behind this is you don't, you know, instead of having a drive an hour and a half to get to these jobs, if you allow for more housing in these areas, maybe you get to drive 10 minutes, which is still good for reducing sort of uh, uh, people's time on the road is sort of the state's as it needs to do to meet its uh, greenhouse gas goals. So this would allow, and again... Um, uh nebulous at this point, but the idea is to push for some more density in uh, areas with high median incomes, good schools, short commutes to jobs, uh, even if there isn't, as we said, a direct access to transit nearby.
0: Yes. And the flip side of that, which is what uh, Senator Weiner talks about in our interview, is uh, public transit. Public transportation is disproportionately concentrated in lower income communities. And so the, one of the major criticisms of SB 27 was, um, well, why, why is this only going to happen, or not only going to happen, but perhaps disproportionately going to happen in poorer places? Right. Um, just because rich, richer places uh, don't have a subway station going right through the middle of town. Right. So you
2: brought up Marin County. I think that's certainly an area that would um, be targeted by this provision. Similarly, Silicon Valley, uh, certain sections uh, on in uh, the west side of Los Angeles that do not have transit. Um, There aren't too many, but certainly there are some. Yeah, Um, sure. And so. So, yeah. So these are the areas that I think that they're thinking about with with this.
0: And you can expect some intense jockeying over how they actually define these, because many of those places will not want this to apply to them
2: and intense jockeying over how you define an area at risk for displacement as well exactly Yep. exactly
0: so one other one other thing that i think we actually should mention before we get into the the political analysis of this is the affordability requirement yes. which we neglected to which i believe was in one of the final iterations of 827 but not in the original iteration which really pissed people off right so in this in sb50 there is a yet-to-be-determined, basically, inclusionary requirement where if your project is going to qualify under SB 50, it's going to have to have some type of affordability component to it. Uh, and if the local affordability requirement is exceeds yeah. whatever this yet-to-be-determined affordability requirement is, um, then you defer to the local requirement. So let's go through all of the political obstacles that or at least the most notable political obstacles that doomed SB 827. And let's talk about where they are in relation to SB 50. The most important out of the ones we're going to discuss are the state construction trades union.
2: Yeah, they're the most powerful interest group when it comes to um, housing in the state par none, period.
0: Yes. And they are partly so powerful because they donate a lot to uh, Democratic legislators. Indeed. So last year... Uh, testifying in opposition to SB 827 was Cesar Diaz, lobbyist or I don't know what his official title, political director or something for the, the, All of it works. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, for the trades, as they're known up here. Mm-hmm. And this year, he's featured in the press release supporting SB 50. So what happened, Liam?
2: Well, it's, it's a big again, it's a big political difference and coup necessary, but not sufficient to a bill like this to pass. Yes, this Um, is a big deal. Yeah, I think I mean, you read the bill. There's nothing that's like you could say is this is the huge carve out to to them that's different than last year. It does include some language that sort of clarifies whatever rights they might have uh, under other supports of state legislation are preserved uh, by this. Um, But I think uh yeah i mean i think them um, getting on board um early is a big win for supporters of this legislation
0: definitely a huge one mm-hmm. let's talk about some big city mayors and notably uh, los angeles mayor eric garcetti
2: so he was um uh i think a good adjective for him last year was squishy a bit squishy uh on i, I would uh, on say on more bill. than
0: squishy I, he yeah. was not a fan no I not a say. fan i
2: mean he said some nice things but then he said was opposed to it and mm-hmm. then he was even stronger and saying you That's know right. we don't want um large complexes next to spanish revival homes or something like that It was some weird quote uh that he said but anyway um uh so he was not a fan l- last year uh, at the end of the day and now um while uh to my understanding he has not officially endorsed the bill um he is saying very nice things about it was included in the press release uh, as someone saying nice things. And so that and and when you couple that with the support, the explicit support of uh, Mayor Breed from San Francisco, Mayor Mayor Steinberg Steinberg of Sacramento, certainly the tide, if you will, on this appears to be have uh, appears to have shifted.
0: Yes, which has implications for whether cities writ large will support or, or oppose this, right? There's Not all cities are the same, obviously, That's right? right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And big cities are, for the most part, more powerful than small cities. So this is notable. The, the reason Garcetti really flipped on this was basically there's a carve-out for a specific program in parcels of South LA where they have agreed upon a more dense and affordable housing plan around transit, Transit oriented development in the parlance of, of housing that is basically exempted from this. And that's why Garcetti's like, all right, sure. This, this isn't really going to affect the work that I've done. Okay. Uh, let's talk about another political obstacle that helped derail SB 827 last year, and that is Senator Jim Bell. Has Senator Jim Bell changed his position?
2: It doesn't appear that way. No, um, he has introduced. and This is a common thing in Sacramento, where you have um, uh, sort of competing legislation, and so uh, he has introduced, along with Senator McGuire uh, of uh, of Marin County, um, uh, who was another opponent of it last year, and also had uh, had a role in sort of shaping the argument around it. Uh, legislation that is a- an intent bill, um, as we've described what those are before, that says yes, we want to increase uh, you know density around transit, but there's another way um he and uh, mcguire have used a lot of language like no one size fits all mm-hmm. um and so um i you know he still sounds still to be still opposed and i would not be surprised if we see a measure that is um again competing um uh, on this but uh, before uh, everything's all said and done
0: and the reason he's important is because he is the current head of senator weiner's committee of uh senate housing and transportation it is Very, very rare for a bill to pass out of a committee without the committee chair's support. Um, So I broke a little bit of news a couple weeks back. It became apparent that it was more likely than not that he he was not going to be chair anymore. In terms of his potential opposition to the bill, if he is no longer chair of the Senate Housing and Transportation Committee, that very much neutralizes his influence on... The future of sb50 that has not been determined yet sure and to be clear he, you spoke to them right like mm. he wants to he be... wants to stay yeah he wants to stay mm. yeah but there are a lot of reasons to believe that he may not get to do that so that's kind of up in the air right now so kind of a, a political obstacle that may or may not be resolved and we'll probably know we'll certainly know by the beginning of january the beginning of the legislative session uh we'll, we'll probably know in the next couple of weeks let's talk about uh, what you've written about extensively when it came to the demise of sba 27 the the very vocal opposition from uh tenants rights and anti-displacement groups
2: yeah so um there was a lot of opposition from it uh, from those groups last year and i sort of keyed on that as the reason why the bill failed um for a variety of reasons um briefly you know one being that they this bill was marketed as helping these communities but it was difficult to um uh, sort of uh, see a world in, in which that was the case when these when these groups that represent them uh, were not on board. Not, you know, largely. Number one. Uh, number two. A lot of the other um, uh, opponents who were who are more powerful politically than these groups used a lot of the language um, that said, "Look, these equity groups don't like it. We have concerns for equity reasons." That was part of the language that the construction workers union used. That was part of the language that the um, environmental groups used, and it was actually part of the language that local government and neighborhood groups also used. And so um, without the support um, uh, or without the um, or because there was such intense opposition from this area, um, I think was the reason for the political demise of the bill, the bill last year.
0: Yeah. And and you yeah. and I slightly disagree about the you know, what, how influential they actually were, as opposed to being, you know, as you mentioned, kind of utilized um, by potentially more powerful forces in the Capitol. Right. But but still, you know. Their voices were heard because they weren't heard initially, right? Correct. Yeah. So, how effective do you think this bill has been at uh, addressing those concerns and removing them as a possible political obstacle?
2: So, I think it's, um, I, I don't, it depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, if you want to give the senator and his allies credit for, um, th- those sorts of groups not or a, lo- a lot of them not um, immediately coming out and saying this is horrible yeah they don't uh, hate it they don't hate it uh, but I think there's to be clear I still there's not a lot of equity groups so far saying yes we love it and so there's a ton of negotiation I think that will still have to be done to see whether they're going to be um, uh, on board or against it I had a great quote from a woman that we had on our, our podcast uh, last year Cynthia uh, uh, Strathman who's uh, director of an equity group uh, strategic actions for a just economy in LA I asked her hey what do you think about this? And remember, she, she you know she had a lot a lot to say on our podcast against this last year, and and her quote this year was. Um she said she's waiting to see her group and many others mm-hmm. in L.A., ha- what, what's going to happen. Just for everyone who's just waiting for us to, to lose our you-know-what right now, we're not losing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that sums up sort of the take, yeah. right, which is um, a lot of negotiation is still to happen on this, but they are somewhat pleased at least with the direction things are going, or at least enough that they're not going to come out uh, uh, against it from the outset.
0: Yes, and I talked with uh, Anya Lawler um, from the Western Center on Law and Poverty who— testified against the bill Um, and it was a very very similar response where it was you know what we we do feel more engaged this time for sure right we don't hate what they've put out right Um, we want to see what happens with the affordability requirement we want to see what happens with this value capture idea you know how exactly do you if property values are gonna rise as a result of some densification how exactly does that get back to lower income communities maybe in in whatever form that might take Um, but but you know i think the bill was at least compared to last year i mean relatively successful in in this regard you didn't hear a chorus of hell no from these groups Well, I think the practical changes
2: to the bill were very much designed at addressing these concerns. Yeah, And so, um, again, we're going to see the ultimate success of that as this sort of works its way through. Yes. But it was clear from the language that came out, the intent was to ameliorate the concerns that were primarily driven from from these groups.
0: Yes. So that leaves uh, one other uh, major source of political opposition, um, and that would be cities without big city mayors that support this, Bill. So tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, so it's the League of Cities uh, in particular. This is the organization are representing cities, uh, 539 cities across across the state. Uh, obviously, anything that's an incursion on their control or their power is going to get a negative reaction. It got a very strong negative reaction last year, um, and uh, it has gotten uh, and I expect to be an equally strong negative reaction this year from not just uh, the League of Cities, but also a bunch of neighborhood groups who yes. were very upset. Individual. Um, Um, elected officials from local governments very upset at this at this idea and again as we said it sort of this doubles down on it because this is now expanding further into uh, wealthier neighborhoods the intent at least is than last year's bill would have
0: yes and underlying all of that is homeowners right and homeowners who would specifically not like to see an apartment building built on their block and like it or not, they form two thirds of the California electorate. Mm-hmm. So even if the League of Cities is kind of isolate, might be a little more isolated than they were last year. Um, these neighborhood groups that you mentioned, and then the phone calls that legislators are going to get, and emails that legislators are going to get from people that they know vote who don't want this bill. It that is that is opposition that should not be underestimated. This is very
2: much a, a- potent political force to be reckoned with in in uh, in the state. And even if you have the building trades on board, even if you have environmental groups on board, even if you have equity groups totally on board, that does not mean this is a cakewalk or something that w- would absolutely going to happen. This idea of impinging on local power over uh, over how to shape their community as they see it um, is a very potent force. It is
0: safe to say that this bill stands a much better chance of advancing through the legislature than the original version of SB 27. Correct. Given the changes in kind of the political landscape that we just outlined, however, um, it is by no means a sure thing. No, it is a. It this is going back to our original uh, metaphor. This kind of it's not Everest, but it is a Himalayan. Yeah. It is a Himalayan ascent. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: I was trying to make a Sherpa joke, but I, I, it didn't come to me. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, you're you're right. And I think that um, we go back and talking before about, about Gavin Newsom. Yes. Um, and, you know, without strong support from the governor's office, it is very easy to see a bill like this getting ground up through the legislature by committee heads um, who say, well, five stories, how about three?
0: Uh, I think that's a perfect way to sum up our uh, analysis of SB 50. Um, let's talk to the guy who actually authored the bill, uh, Senator Scott Wiener from San Francisco. So we're here uh, with
2: Senator Scott Wiener, Democrat of San Francisco, uh, author of Senate Bill 50. Senator Wiener, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So. Um, why don't, from your perspective, you tell us uh, what you learned from the debate last year over your prior bill on this issue, and how that informed uh, what you've tried to do so far this year? Uh,
1: I learned it was completely non-controversial, so you know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
1: I know I, I learned a lot, and and it was. I think when when we introduced SB eight hundred and twenty-seven last January, we we course knew it was going to be controversial uh, I don't think any of us uh, I certainly did not anticipate the uh, breadth and depth and intensity of the statewide conversation on, on the bill both people who were enthusiastically um, supportive and people who were enthusiastically uh, and deeply opposed uh, it was the only bill I've ever carried where people, not just in San Francisco, but in other cities, will stop me on the street and know the bill number. Um, that does not usually happen. And uh, you know, people would uh, tell me that they were at a dinner party and it like, dominated the conversation. And what, what that uh, really reminded me was how, uh, how significant housing is in California as an issue, as a challenge. Uh, and that uh, I think more than anything, SBA 27 helped uh, unleash uh, a uh, a long overdue conversation about when we say we want housing to be more affordable, do we really mean it, or are we just going to get mad about it? Are we going to a- actually take the hard steps that you need to take to make housing more affordable to reduce displacement? Are we going to do that, or are we just going to get mad about it? Uh, and so I, even though the bill didn't advance, and that's not shocking uh, for a bill uh, of that that difficult in its first year, um, I think it did move the conversation forward. And so this year, in retooling it and reintroducing it, now we've had about a year of pretty intense debate and conversation about it, so it is, it's, is—it's a I think, a smoother um, conversation this time. It didn't just come out of left field for some people. But uh, a few things um, that, that I learned, uh, one is that we had to do um, more in particular in working with progressives, with people who advocate for tenants, for, uh, for, for housing equity. We, we just had a lot of work to do in terms of outreach uh, and collaboration, and we've done that. Um, there's more work to do, don't get me wrong, but we've been spending the last really six or eight months uh, working intensively with uh, equity uh, housing groups, both in Los Angeles and in
0: the Bay Area. And we've made some changes as a result. So, uh, so sorry to interrupt, yeah. Scott, he but the, head but of California note, YIMBY, yes, in my backyard here um, last year to talk about SBA 27, the sponsor of the bill. And he said, you know, we're, we're new to this, talking specifically about California YIMBY. Uh, we're new to the kind of the legislative process and how things work here in Sacramento, and that's part of the reason why we didn't consult many of these groups that represent low-income communities of color um, and anti-gentrification, anti-displacement groups. And that there's there's a grain of truth to that, right? California MB is new. Yeah. You're you're not new, right? You're relatively new to Sacramento, but you're not a political novice by any means. So why, why didn't you anticipate um, the need to reach out to these groups? Well,
1: just to be really clear, I, I, when I say um, uh, what I didn't anticipate was... Again, we knew it was going to be a hard and controversial bill, and I've done many hard and controversial bills both locally and in, in Sacramento. So I, I absolutely knew that there was going to be controversy around the bill. Um, what, I, what I did not anticipate was the scale of the dialogue around the bill—that it would make national and international news, that people would know the bill number. You know, uh, you know, which people never know the bill number unless they're involved in the process. Uh, And so I I knew that there was going to be controversy and a lot of work to do. I just didn't anticipate the scale of it. But let me also back up. And uh, and you're right. I've been a uh, a legislator for quite some time. And I you know none of us is perfect, but I I do have a sense for how to do a bill. Um, And there there are there are when you are going to propose something really hard. uh, Yes, you can. You can take the approach, I'm going to work out every issue before I even introduce it. I'm going to work through that. And sometimes that works. There are times when you have like a natural broad coalition behind you, uh, and you can just work it all out before you introduce it. And then, of course, there's always negotiation, but you have most of the stuff worked out. Um, and, And that can work well. That can also mean the death of your bill, because especially for a hard issue like this, zoning reform, which has not been a big topic of discussion. Um, If you decide you want to work it out before you introduce it, um, you're often not going to get people's attention. Some people might be dismissive. I don't really want to work on that. I'm working on other things. Um, And you end up either not being able to move forward or it gets so watered down by the time you introduce it that you don't even have much of a bill anymore. And there are times and there are issues where you have to move forward and just say, this is what we're proposing. And then you take the feedback and you work with people. Uh, and so I don't, um, I don't uh, in terms of how we did it last time, uh, I'm, I don't back away from that. I'm, I think that uh, it was reasonable how we did it last time to introduce the bill, announce the idea, and then have dialogue with people. And once you have a bill that's in print with a bill number that's an official thing, you get people's attention. Uh, and, and, and yes, it didn't work the first time around, but uh, again, you look at anything big in the legislature, it is the exception, not the rule, where a big, 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 significant thing that's hard will get passed in its first year.
2: So in the, re- in the aftermath of this, this bill being introduced, w- were you surprised at any of, any of the reaction that came? You mean in terms of SB50? Correct, this year
1: um i was uh, i've been very uh, i don 't want to say surprised i wasn 't sure um, exactly what the reaction among uh, progressives as a whole was going to be among or when I say progressives i 'm referring to in the housing world equity groups who advocate for tenants um, and there have been uh, you know the groups we worked with of course have been terrific and have said hey well, there 's more work to do but we're, we're working, and you know we like some of the changes that have been made. But there are um, people, both in San Francisco and when I've been in LA, who have come up to me and said, "Hey, I, I really had issues with your bill last year, but I really like some of the changes that you're making." I, have, you know, there was a guy I was at a holiday party, a political holiday party, who is a very vocal critic of me in general in San Francisco, who came up to me and said, "You know, I um, I'm keeping an open mind in your bill, and I really appreciate that you put." strong tenant and demolition protections in there. So I'm I'm holding my keeping my powder dry. Mm-hmm. So I, that has been very, um, I've been really happy about that. Just, again, people may end up opposing or being neutral or supporting in the end, but that people are actually being really thoughtful and are paying close attention to the changes we've made and are watching what we're doing, uh, and that's all I can ask for. Uh,
0: what, what conversations, if any of you, had with uh, Governor... Elect Newsom's transition team, and and what do you expect from the future governor in terms of support for this mm-hmm. bill?
1: Uh, well, we've uh, we've kept uh, Governor Elect Newsom's team uh, very updated on what we're doing. Uh, we've uh, you know, briefed them. just We want to make sure that they know exactly what what we're doing. Uh, the governor elect and I have spoken various times uh, about this uh, about this issue, uh, and <clears throat> uh, I you know I. Would, would never try to predict what uh what the governor elect will do I don't want to speak for him uh what I will say is i know I've known Gavin Newsom for about twenty years uh, I know him to be an extremely pro housing person in general, not just as candidate for governor but back to, to when he was mayor of San Francisco. This is definitely an authentically held view uh of his, and he was very clear during the campaign that that he uh, his goal was the creation of 3.5 million homes over the course of his time in office, which is very aggressive, but I love bold goals. And and to achieve that, to build 3.5 million homes, which is, is our housing deficit, uh, you will not be, you're never going to do that without zoning reform.
2: Do, do you have endorsements uh, from either uh, the pro tem or the speaker?
1: Uh, no, and that would be that would be um, that's pretty out of the ordinary uh i've uh spoken to both about it and uh uh what we do have if you look at the bill we have a large number of co-authors uh in both houses in regions throughout the state including uh you know not just the bay area but also the central coast and los angeles and san diego and orange county and the central valley um, we have uh, both Democrats and Republicans, senators and assembly members, uh, and uh, uh, you know, so we we have a broad-based
2: coalition here. So, it's, so, and I'm glad you brought that up because zoning is not necessarily a partisan issue. Um, Right. I mean, but and I I bring that up because some of sort of the most prominent detractors um, to this, your your colleagues in the legislature, uh, you know, last year, Senator, uh, Senator Bell um, was not a fan. um, And this bill will have to go through his um, committee likely again um, uh, for the coming year Uh, in the assembly, the head of the Transportation Committee, um, Assemblyman Frazier, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, spoke at a a recent meeting of the resources board to talk about um, how he was not not a fan of uh sort of uh, you know state taking more control over zoning issues he was very much opposed to um a bill that uh, uh that passed last year on on sort of upzoning around BART um, yep, it was and, signed in the law yes yeah yeah it was so how do you how do you um plan to sort of deal with the fact that you have really strong opposition uh, among your party among those who have pretty powerful positions um, well within that party? I
1: don't I don't think it's accurate to say I have strong opposition from my own party. Uh, I have enormous respect for Senator Bell, uh, and I he and I agree on almost everything. We're, our voting is almost identical. We have some disagreements on housing. But, but I, I also think that Senator Bell and I have a lot of common ground on housing, and I believe uh, we will be able to uh, uh, really find that common ground. And he and I have always worked well together. So, I, uh, you know, we had... Um, a situation with the bill last year and he didn't support the bill and, and that was fine. I respect that. Uh and we're gonna work to try to build that support and earn not just Senator Bell's support but the support of others. Uh but there is a lot of support for this bill among Democrats in both houses of the legislature. What? Uh and we also have Republican support. But but housing is absolutely not a partisan issue. There are Democrats and Republicans on both sides of the issue, and I've always gotten um, a strong majority of Democrats to support my housing bills, as well as a number of Republicans. Uh, That's how we've been able to get strong votes on other hard housing bills.
2: Uh, that I've authored. Sure. I think think my question was more directly related to particular individuals and particular positions of power who uh, may agree with you on many other things, but on this particular issue, uh, clearly you have a difference of opinion. Yes. I mean,
1: Senator Bell and I have some differences of opinion around this issue, but I actually don't think that they are. There are some some people who fundamentally disagree with the idea of doing zoning reform and think the state should have absolutely no role. Um, I don't based on my many conversations with Senator Bell about this issue, I don't believe he falls into that category. Uh, We were, uh, in our dialogue and negotiations around the bill leading up to that committee hearing, he was not saying no. He was asking for amendments, and some of the amendments I was willing to accept. Uh, In fact, most of his proposed amendments I was willing to accept, but there were some that I simply could not uh, accept because I thought that it undermined what we were trying to do in the bill. Um, So he is not categorically opposed, and uh, every legislative session is unique, Uh, and I think we are in a very different position politically this time. Uh, You know, last time, also, if you're you're chair of Transportation and Housing Committee, and you have a bill that comes to your committee, uh, and labor is opposed to it, and a broad equity coalition is opposed to it, uh, you know. That's a different position than it coming to your committee, and labor is supporting it, and you have equity groups uh, that, may, that were opposing it before but are now either supporting it or neutral on it. It's a very, very different dynamic. Uh, and so I take my responsibility as an author very seriously in terms of my job being to make the case to my colleagues that this is good
0: policy also chairmanships change Um, so one of the more interesting and kind of provocative parts of uh, this new bill is this provision that would basically allow higher density building to take place in wealthier enclaves um, where there are good jobs and good schools but not a lot of dense housing could you could you uh, give a little background as to why that's in there and then give a give an example of the type of community that you think would be ideal for uh this provision to to take place in
1: yes and to answer that second question i really i'm i have a general policy of not naming names in terms of which cities i want to see housing and i don't i don't want to make it about that or you're targeting certain cities i'm trying it, to make it it about
0: won't them. be personal so <laughs> other other
1: people can can fill in uh, some of those blanks i think some of them are pretty obvious but so which um, are the
2: obvious ones? <laughs> Could you do, like, a, perhaps a valley? Could you name a valley in which you'd like to see some, <laughs> <laughs> some more housing? Um But
1: on to the first <laughs> uh, question. Uh, so w- one of the critiques of the bill, which I think was, um, in my mind, mostly well taken, was that when you mapped the geography of SB 827, it was disproportionately it disproportionately covered lower income communities and the the reason for that is that historically um, wealthier communities have often kept public transportation out uh sometimes for very bad reasons but they've done so uh and uh and and, and so public transit has been disproportionately built in lower income communities now, I thought I'd most the point, that critique was mostly well taken. When I say mostly, it's only because one thing that ne- did not happen in the mapping earlier this year is instead of just mapping the geography, you also need to really put a zoning overlay because the reality is that in many low-income communities, not all, there are exceptions, like in South L.A. and parts of Oakland, for example, uh, in Uh, lower-income communities in California are more likely to already have high-density zoning. Uh, And so there were low-income neighborhoods that were technically covered by SBA-27 because of their proximity to transit, Um, but they were already zoned for density, so the bill would have had no actual impact on that neighborhood. With that said, it was a valid uh, uh, criticism. Uh, And so we, in recrafting the bill, um, we took that into account, uh, we did two things. First we have and these two provisions are still a work in progress. They're they're in the bill as general concepts, but we have to work through them. Um, that for uh low uh communities with uh neighborhoods with high concentration of poverty, uh, communities that are experienced or at risk of uh significant displacement pressure, allowing uh for a uh multi-year deferral um, to allow for local anti-displacement planning. But then we, there are also communities that don't have great transit, but they, are, they have a lot of great access to opportunities like jobs, schools, et cetera, and particularly jobs. And if you are a community that is a major job center or right next to a major job center, um, maybe people aren't using transit, but instead of driving an hour and a half to work, People are more likely to be driving 15 or 20 minutes to work, so you're reducing vehicle miles traveled and carbon emissions. So uh, you know, this is about having housing near transit and having housing near jobs. Uh, and, and so we have incorporated that concept into the bill. It will lead to a more equitable um, result in terms of both higher income and lower income communities being included uh, in the bill. Uh, and it will uh, help us achieve our carbon reduction and VMT reduction goals by allowing people to live closer to where they work.
2: I, I'm wondering, um, you may be aware there's some discussion about, uh, from the League of Cities, uh, some community from there about a potential ballot measure that would, some potential ballot measure that would um, sort of uh, re entrench local control provisions or, or sort of deal with that issue um, in, a, in a stronger way. Uh, there's a more organized effort, I suppose, among some community activists to oppose measures like yours. Do you have any concern about there being uh, this bill being part of any sort of overreach that would provoke a reaction that could, you know, re- re- result in a ballot measure that would make things a lot more difficult for you to get your, your needs yeah. or the issues um, you want on this?
1: Yeah, there's this group called Livable California, which is actually um, it's it should be called the livable. Livable California for people who already have housing and are closing the doors behind them. I mean, it's really seems like a really long acronym. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a long acronym, but yeah, but accuracy is important. Um, yeah, it's not California is not so livable these days for people who are struggling with housing, or people ha- who have to commute an hour and a half each way to work, or people who are living in their cars, or the uh, 17,000 uh, children in LA Unified. Uh, who are homeless? It's not that livable for them. Uh, and so I, I think this livable California title is a really, in my mind, offensive name. but putting that aside, um, could there be an attempt to yes, I, I've heard about this idea of some sort of state measure or constitutional amendment to uh, basically say the legislature can't pass any housing uh, legislation and uh, you know, first of all, that, that would be incredibly uh, destructive because the reality is, and I say this as a former local elected official, I believe in local control. I, th- I believe that more often, far more often than not, local decision-making is the superior way of making choices for communities. Um, but it's not 100% of the time. And local control is a good thing when it delivers good results, uh, which it usually does, but not always. And we have had a system of almost pure local control around housing in California for a long time with either no state standards or toothless state standards. And look where we are. We've driven the car into a ditch. We have a three and a half million home deficit. We see the human suffering that is happening because of the housing crisis and young people and working class people and young families being pushed out, people not being able to envision a future for themselves in their community so there's always a risk of a backlash but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do everything in our power to solve major problems facing our state so we are aware of what they're talking about uh... and if they go ahead and, and are somehow able to qualify uh... a measure i don't know maybe you know i don't even we we know who could potentially fund that kind of measure um, there will be a huge effort to defeat it uh... and 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 again, I just don't think that should stop us from trying to make positive change.
2: Who would who would fund that?
1: Who would fund what?
2: That you said there is possibly we know who might who oh, might fund yeah. that.
1: Uh, you know, I, I can just say there, there's a person who has basically become the nimby in chief in the state of California, and it's Michael Weinstein, uh, and he. Uh, You know, he tried to shut down housing production in California with with Measure S, and he uh, doesn't like it when buildings block his views, and he gets very upset, and he, uh, you know, funded... uh, uh, You know, he he helped fund opposition to SB 827. Uh, We know that. And he... He
2: also funded the rent control campaign Mm -hmm. for that.
1: He did. He did. Um, He also, you know, funded other things having nothing to do with housing. Um, But he... He's definitely taken on uh, that role, and, you know, he, I, I uh, you know, as someone who has spent a lot of my life advocating uh, for people living, you know, with HIV, when you have a, a, an organization uh, called, you know, that, that's supposed to be dedicating itself to people living with HIV that does something like sponsor Measure S, uh, that, that's, it, it's really, it's troubling to me and to a lot of people.
2: Do you expect there to be a um, package of housing legislation this year, and and uh, if 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 not, uh, do you think basically I, what I'm getting at is do you think any of these sort of high profile bills, whether it's your your bill or redevelopment uh, sort of redo or a big tax credit bill or a, lot, or a new funding bill, I think all those any of those bills can make it on their own, or do you think sort of like two years ago, it's going to take a, a collection of bills for any of them to to to, to come to fruition? Uh-
1: yeah, I'm very confident there will be uh, uh, a housing package. Um, we're already, you know, I've been working closely with Nancy Skinner and David Chu and, and Phil Ting and, and others um, on different ideas, and, and and various members have introduced really excellent bills, some of which I'm co-authoring. Uh, and uh, and so yes, I, I'm, I I am pretty confident that we'll have. Uh, a package and uh and you, all of these bills have a lot of strength on their own uh but when there's when you, there's a package it, it it's we're, we're stronger together as a team uh and we saw that in 2017 once you have the the governor involved and the leadership of both houses it's every and the bills all coalesce around each other and it it becomes an incredibly powerful uh, situation and, and it makes it easier to to pass bills that might pass on their own uh, but it wouldn't be the, the same uh, the same kind of momentum behind them so uh, I want there to be a package. I believe it's highly likely there will be a package and
0: I look forward to it um so one one of the criticisms kind of of you personally that gets lobbed your way a lot is this, this thing about you being a shell for developers, right? You see the memes on Twitter, um, you know, every time there's a campaign contribution from a, a developer or a similar entity that kind of gets brought up. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how do you kind of counteract those criticisms? And is it possible for you politically to not accept those contributions?
1: Um, w- well, you know, people say what they're going to say. And you can look at any elected officials' fundraising and and poke holes in it. Uh, you, know, you know, when I ran for the Senate, um, I, I was, uh, you know, my, I, people who were against me were attacking me. Oh, you're just in the pocket of developers, even though my opponent uh, was taking a lot more developer money than I ever did. So people just, you know, people are going to, if I stop taking developer money tomorrow, they just find another, you know, reason to, uh, uh attack me or they would say well this person who's helping you took money from someone who took money from a developer uh, I I have m- my my goal is not to help developers I work with a lot of different people including nonprofit affordable housing developers uh, people who develop market rate people who are uh, in academia people who are advocating for low-income tenants uh, a wide range of people in this, in this area. Uh, and my interest is not for developers to make profit. My interest is to have enough housing for everyone. Someone has to build the housing. The housing doesn't build itself. Um, maybe a few people build their own homes, but they're um, certainly a tiny minority. <laughs> and so I guarantee you are the people listening to this podcast, um, I'm going to hazard a guess that 99.9% of them uh, live in a home uh, whether it's single family or an apartment or a condo that was built by a developer at some point or another. And heaven forbid that developer made a profit from building that home, otherwise the developer wouldn't have done it. Uh, if it was a subsidized affordable housing uh, unit, then it was a nonprofit uh, that built it that wasn't making a profit, uh, but certainly had to have that unit pencil out financially.
2: Uh, so I'm glad you brought up, brought up our listeners. Uh, my so my next question is is on behalf of them. As you might expect, they they tend to be very engaged um, on housing issues in California to so be listening to us. And so I'm wondering uh, if you could sort of tell them what they should be on the lookout for with respect to uh, your bill SP fifty over the next few months. What are sort of roadmap the roadmap uh, here that they should pay, be paying attention to?
1: Sure. Well, we have a few pieces of the bill which I. Uh, discussed that are still being fleshed out so at some point we will uh you know finalize that process and, and put the the more detailed uh language uh, in um, and uh you know we'll uh, presumably it'll get its first committee hearing late March maybe early April so that'll obviously be a significant uh milestone and uh, uh you know, we're also going to continue to build our support, and we have uh, uh, organizations and voices, you know, people who, uh, are not on, who have not endorsed the bill yet, but we believe will, so I think we're going to see continuing momentum in terms of the support coalition uh, for the bill. Uh, and uh, uh, just keep an eye out. I'm sure uh, this bill will not be one of those bills that just sort of Quietly and invisibly moves forward. I'm sure there'll be plenty of plenty of focus and discussion. But I also think people should focus on some of the other bills that my colleagues are doing. I think Phil Ting uh, and Nancy Skinner are doing some fantastic work, and Bob Wieckowski, um around uh, uh, in-law units uh, to try to close the loopholes uh, that some uh, some cities, not all, but some, are exploiting to try to prevent uh in law units from being put in. So there's a lot of energy, a lot of great bills to watch and uh it's gonna be a good year I think. do you
2: like do you like no, in law no. units? <laughs> so what? Would, would, do you like the word in law <laughs> units would not yeah, word perhaps is like exactly casita where I was gonna go be a little bit more descriptive and kinda nice oh, way pet,
1: to, did I hit a pet peeve of yours? Yeah,
2: I just I mean I well ADU is the worst. So like in law is a little bit better, but like casita I think is the really if you have to come down to it the best possible uh, way I to
1: just think it. people know what I always when I say accessory dwelling units to yeah. people, a lot of people if they're not how, like Twitter housing geeks right. like we are yeah. um, their eyes glazed over there. Exactly. So exactly people know an in-law unit I mean you can call it a granny uh, flat but that I don't like that phrase
0: yeah. so in-law
2: it's just it's descriptive
0: I, um, I like in-law unit that works for me yeah he's just
2: trying to get me to stop saying casita eh, so you know. casita <laughs> yeah. did you just laugh at casita? Is yes that, yeah <laughs> He did. Yes, he did. I don't.
1: I don't. I don't. I don't think that's a goal. I think you should. I, I don't think to see this happening.
2: Oh.
0: Sorry. Yeah. Wow. Um, Just all over my dreams. I thank can't you. think okay. of a better note to end on. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Senator Wiener, for taking the time. Hopefully, next time it could be in person. Uh, I would love that. Thank so, you. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. Uh, this, again, is Matt Levin, housing and data journalist with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Liam Dillon with the LA Times, and I'm on Twitter at Dylan
2: Liam. Uh, and please, again, uh, tweet at us for your our Avocado of the Year nomination. That'd be cool.
0: And remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It really does help. Thanks again for listening.